Well, the Christian faith has been described by using many analogies and, and many terms, many descriptions. Um, it's, been, it's been described as a fight, right? First Timothy, Paul exhorts his, really his son in the faith to fight the good fight. Um, it's been described as a race that we're going to see here. Uh, that it's a race. There's, when you think about a race, it's intentional, it's focused, and it's striving towards a finish line. There is a goal ahead. And even Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that it, it, he describes the Christian faith as a boxing match. That he, he is, He's a boxer and he does not box the air aimlessly, but, but he fights with full conviction and full assurance. And he's boxing, right? That, that this is the analogy that Paul describes the Christian faith. And to give us some context, we're going to see that that the author of Hebrews describes the Christian faith here as a race. He says it's a race that's set before us. It's given to us to run. And just like any race, just as any racer either has in the back of their mind because they cannot see the finish line or that they can, we are supposed to fix our eyes on something. On what? Or more, on whom? Jesus. This verse Many of you may be familiar with this verse, and if you're not, I would encourage you to, to study it after this, but it is a great encouragement, really, to every believer. In fact, most scholars say that this is, we've now arrived, what, what he, most, most scholars would say is the kind of the pinnacle of Hebrews, right, in this, these couple of verses, and really in chapter 12. In the Hebrews, these people have gone through incredible persecution, been beaten, uh, on the run, their possessions have been stolen. They're, they're facing some incredible persecution. Un, unlike that today, n- nevertheless, we do f- find ourselves in some kind of difficulty. This year has been, as we've just said, an incredible year for most of us. It's brought new rhythms, new uh, a quarantine, isolation, all of the sort. It's been a year that has been marked by incredible difficulty. And so... This is a great reminder for us to fix our eyes on Jesus in an incredibly important and difficult time. You know, someone once said that really the test of any philosophy or any religion is not how it feels or what it's doing for you in times of great comfort and ease, but what's it doing for you when the bottom falls out? What's it doing for you when everything is shattered, when your life feels like it couldn't get any worse, when you're at your end? That's the true depth of your religion or your philosophy. But only for the Christian are we afforded a privilege to look to someone in the midst of incredibly harrowing times, just like these Hebrews were encouraged to. We're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to look at what that means. And in this race that the Christian life is, how we can do that. So, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, in that um, Lord, that the Christian life is a race. In any race, it is hard and difficult. And God, many of us in this room can empathize with that. In our personal walks with you, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in our families. And in our, in our personal lives, God, we, we know that the race can be brutal at times. God, help us to fix our eyes on you and not on ourselves, not on our circumstances. Help us to strive uh, after you. Help us to love you and to obey you. God, we also know that today here that um, nothing is outside of your sovereignty and there Nothing is a coincidence. And so God, we know that everyone here in this room is here on purpose. And so God, we know that um, there may be many, many people in here who are suffering, hurting, um, struggling. God, would you be the God of all comfort for them? And if there are people here who rely too much on self for their right standing with you, too much on personal self-righteousness, God, would Holy Spirit, would you convict them of sin and unrighteousness and lead them to Jesus? Lord, we're so thankful for your word and how it ministers to us. We're thankful for the body of believers gathered here today to hear your word. And God, Lord, lastly, I just ask the Holy Spirit that you would preach through me. God, help me to uh, preach the truth. And God, help me to uh, calm any nerves and help me to speak what you would want me to speak. So God, we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Hebrews 12, one through three. Again, there's been many figures of speech to describe the Christian life. A race, a boxing match, um, a wrestling match, in, in fact. What is, what, are the, what, is the, the, what is Paul, what is the author of Hebrews getting at? Is that there is a striving. There, there, this is an exhortation letter. So he's exhorting us, or whoever the author is, to action. Not towards passivity, not towards coasting. Excuse me, coasting. He's encouraging us to fight to press on and to look at something, right? This shows us that the Christian life is one that is not aimless. It's not aimless. It's not coasting. It's not, may offend some here, it's not like jogging, right? Just jogging. I'm jogging to jog. Now, I don't jog, so I'm a little biased, right? Obviously, I don't jog. Um, But jogging, right? It's just jogging to jog. There's a a great Anchorman quote in here I wish I could quote. Um, Nevertheless, uh, the Christian life is, is, is one with purpose. It's one that's fixed. It's one with a, with, a, with a finish line in mind, right? And Paul is showing us that the Christian life can often be agonizing. Where do I get that? Well, did I insert that? No, actually, one of the words that's used here, the, that the author used, the word race is the word called agon in the Greek. And, and the, I typically wouldn't mention that just, just because it doesn't matter. But the reason why is Agon is, is the word that we get the word agonizing from. 
It's where we get the word agonizing from. And what the, the author is showing is that the, the word race or agon means that the Christian life can often be agonizing. It's intentional. And if you, think, if you think about a race, you know, a Boston Marathon or an Indianapolis Marathon, um, for those of you who have run them, I personally never have and never will. Um, but if you think about a long-distance marathon, if you look at the people at the end, what is their face? What is going on with them? They're typically in pain. They're typically striving with everything they have to simply finish the race. Some even have to be helped and and kind of physically helped to finish the race, to cross the line. And this shows us that the Christian faith will be like that for some of us. It's a race. And in a race, there's a purpose. It's not aimless, and yet it's agonizing. Purpose of any race is to what? Is to win the race, to finish the race. And to finish a race, and the Christian race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We know that. Some of you may know that. It will take endurance. It will take patience. It will take striving, and there will be many highs and lows. This is a warning against coasting in the Christian life. It is, it's so easy in the Christian life to find ourselves just coasting, content with things that we should not be content with, coasting, half-hearted, saying, yeah, I, you know, I'll go to church. Yeah, I'll go to a small group or a community group, yeah, but, but my heart is not in it. No one finishes a race if that is their mindset. Everyone who is in a race is in a race to finish, to win. And the Christian life is a race. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're talking about a race. But look up, right? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. We notice how the author talks about sin, right? He says it clings so closely. In other words, that sin is not something that often... um, We don't wake up and say, I need to find effort to sin. I need to look intentionally to go out and it takes much effort to sin. Rather, sin, as the author says, clings often so closely. It's around us, it's around us. The author isn't talking about necessarily specific sin. He's talking about general sin. The sin that every human person, because we have been marred by Adam, finds ourselves in. That we are sinful and it clings so closely to us. What is it for you Because whatever it is for you, and it could be different for other people, the author is encouraging us to lay it aside. Lay aside that weight. Lay aside that sin which clings so closely. You think about about a race, and even a sprint. No one puts on a dress. No one puts on clothes like this or the ones that you're wearing. Why? Because it's heavy. It's weighty. It weighs you down. You will not be able to run to the degree that you are intending to if you have clothes like this on. No one runs a 100-meter sprint in, in these kinds of shoes or the shoes that you have on, possibly. Why? Because they're a weight. Maybe, maybe some of you have Nikes on. You may be looking at your shoes right now. <laughs> but the point is, is that in a race, especially in the Christian race, we're called to throw aside weight and sin. Why? 
because it inhibits our ability to finish. It trips us up. And for one woman or man, it may be different from the next. For one, lust may be the weight. Lust may be the thing that is tripping them up. For another, it could be gossip. For another, it could be lying, bending the truth. Though they are different, we all have weights. We all have sin that trips us up. What is it for you? I'm just a man. I I don't know what that could be for you. That's on you and the Holy Spirit to wrestle with. But what is it? There is something in our life that's tripping us up on the Christian race. Could it be a relational conflict? Could it be lust? Could it be a, a grudge that you've been nursing and bitterness towards someone? Whatever it is, the author is saying, if you are serious about running this race, self-examination and looking at your sin and throwing it off is critical to finishing that race. Only to the degree that we are serious about throwing off our sin, our weights, only to that degree will we finish the race. And friends, enjoy the race. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. One Puritan said that, John Owen. And as I was thinking about this, you know, most of us, if we are serious about running the race in the Christian life, though not all, most of us are not impeded by dramatic sins, but by the toleration of respectable sins, the sins that we're just okay having. Because we may look horizontally and say, well, they're doing that, it doesn't matter. Or I'm not doing what they're doing, so this, this is fine. It's not so much, no, though there are obviously are saints like David who found, them, found himself committing adultery, right? And it's funny enough, as you talk about the, the cloud of witnesses and that, that cloud meaning a multitude, a large number, which he's drawing back to Hebrews 11 of the great hall of faith, the heroes of the faith. Many of them had significant sins in their life, but most of us today do not find ourselves possibly committing those sins, but the sin that trips us up is the things that we just are, are okay tolerating. Even idolatry. Things that we slip into to putting all of my weight and all of my hope and all of my joy is in this. It's a good thing. Maybe, maybe it not be sin in and of itself, but when we put our life, when we put our hope and our joy, it, becomes, it goes from a good thing that God has given to an ultimate thing. We slip into idolatry. You know, in Genesis... Before sin entered the world, there was what was called shalom and peace, right? When you think of that word shalom, that, that word we often think it, it means peace, and it does. But the Hebrews understand that it was more nuanced than just peace. What they understood that it, it, it meant right ordering, a right ordering. Everything is in the right place. And when you think of sin, what sin does, it is disordering. St. Augustine said that really sin is disordered loves, that we love things too much and we love God too little. In other words, it would be like this, that, that we have things like um, maybe uh, our, our work and, and our career and hobbies that may be at three and four in the orders of our love, but they move to one and Jesus gets relegated to three. And what happens is not freedom, but bondage. This is the nature of idolatry, that we have exalted something to the level of God and looked for it to do something for us that, we can't, that it simply cannot. I've thought of a couple of things that, that I've recently seen, not just in my own life, but, but around. And these are, mind you, these are good things. These are not bad things. These are actually gifts from God that we in the human heart exalt to a level where it should not be. One would be family. How can family be a weight, you ask? Doesn't God call us to love our families? Of course, absolutely. 
And, and actually, what a slander to the gospel if we did not love our families and if we did not minister to our children and if we did not love our wives and our spouses, of course. But there's a tendency to exalt family to the degree above Jesus. We must be careful above that, to, to not do that. Our professional life, our business, our, our, our career, does God call us to work towards that? Absolutely. Of course, this is a good gift. But it can so easily be our identity. It can be so easily become, this is what I live for. This is who I am. And once that happens in the human heart, it, does not, it goes from being a good gift to sin in a way that needs to be repented of. Here's one in my own personal life. Theology. Theology. Should Christians love theology? Absolutely. God is knowable. He is, even in Jeremiah, he says, my people die for a lack of knowledge about me. We should press on to know God in the word and through prayer and in the, in the communion of saints. But there can be a tendency for the believer to prize theology, knowing about him rather than knowing him. And there is a difference. I've found that uh, people can drift into uh, using theology, knowledge of God to win arguments, right? They seem like kind of like spiritual cranks, always wanting to find the heresy, the, the, the kind of the splitting hairs heresy. And they want to debate and show off knowledge about God, but in the silence of their own home, in the privacy of their own life, when there's no one to perform for, no more books to read about theology, Jesus is not loved, he's not adored. They don't, we don't draw near to him in our own private life. We don't look to his word and enjoy just meeting with Jesus we look for arguments about him to, to, to win a debate. Um, there's no extended time of prayer. There's no time to marvel at God's word. Theology has become ammunition, not worship. It's become ammunition to win an argument. And when this happens, friends, he's not both the God and best friend that he's intended to be to us. He's a tool in a toolbox to build a reputation on. And friends, we must be very careful not to drift and make theology, knowledge about God, Wait, Rather, it is supposed to encourage us and, and enliven our hearts to the beauty of God. Even things like theology, and as amazing as it is, can be sin, can be a weight in our life, if not checked. And these weights in our life, they can feel, that's the key word, they can feel as if they are light. But friends, if not examined, they can become heavier and they can weigh us down in the Christian race. And if not critically examined, they will weigh us down. So I ask you, what's tripping you up? What's weighing you down? How are we to fight sin? That is the question that the author poses in question, or in verse two. How are you to fight sin? How are you to take off of these weights? What is the impetus to throw off sin and to fight your sin and to repent and long for Jesus? He gives it in verse two. Looking to Jesus, right? If you think of my first point would be throw off sin. My second point would be to fix our eyes. Now let me say something. If my first point and my third point were to be put together, they would be an engine, right? But what I'm telling you now is the second point is the gas to that engine. Throwing off sin and then we're gonna consider Jesus and how he calls us and pushes us not to grow weary and faint-hearted in the Christian life. 
But the gas that makes that engine run is right here. And it's Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him. Looking at him. Looking at him until our emotions are stirred. Looking at him and seeing how dearly he loves us. And that there was no cost too high for him to pay for you. That is the gas that makes this engine run, friends. The sweet and amazing love of Jesus for sinners and sufferers like you. Yes, even today, no matter how you come in, if you are in Christ, no matter if you're saying, man, I am doing great in the Lord and I love the Lord, praise God, fix your eyes on Jesus. And if you're coming in here and you are discouraged in your Christian life, and if you think, man, I haven't read my Bible in a week or however long, fix your eyes on him. This is what the author is encouraging us to do and how freeing that is, friends. How freeing it is to look to Jesus and not yourself. How freeing it is to look to Jesus and not yourself. Think on this verse if you're struggling in the Christian walk and think on this verse if you're doing well in the Christian life. You know, we live in a culture and because of sin in our own life, we are geared towards self, right? New year, do me, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's the, the phrase. New year, new me. You know, I even saw a bumper sticker I was, as I was driving that says, I heart me. And I was, I was even watching something on ESPN and Terrell Owens, the Hall of Famer NFL receiver. If you know anything about him, he was a, was a great wide receiver. But yet he, he said something he, he would say, you know, before a game, I need to get pumped up and I need to feel good about myself. And so literally it showed, a, it showed a clip of him on the side of his game saying, I love me some me. I love me some me. And we laugh and we laugh. I love, right? I laughed. Um, but, but although we, we may not go as so far as Terrell Owens, but it is so freeing not to look at me right? And this thinking can plague the Christian life. Because when we look at ourselves in the Christian life, when we fix our eyes on self and not on Jesus, we can either be puffed up or deflated. We're either puffed up with pride because we look at our lives and we think, look, I'm doing great. I'm getting up. I'm having my quiet time. I'm doing a good job of prayer. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering to my family. I'm trying to reach my coworkers. I'm doing great but rather it's Jesus in you. It's Christ in you. That is the hope. Or we drift towards pride. And it is pride, although it kind of looks as if it may be self-loathing. We fall into this kind of self-loathing attitude where I'm the worst Christian. I looked at this. I haven't spent near amount of time in the Bible as I'd like. I got mad at my kids. I don't repent enough. Reason after reason why God, God's face is frowning upon you. And friends, let me make something very clear. The Holy Spirit's role in our life is solely to point us to the work of Jesus. To point us to him. It is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit, Charles Spurgeon says, to point us to Jesus, to take our minds off ourselves, and to look at him. But what is Satan's strategy? What is the enemy's strategy? The enemy's strategy and his best one is look at yourself. When your eyes are on self and not on Christ, we're bound to drift off course like a ship in a sea storm. 
Satan throws thoughts like the, like the ones mentioned or the ones such as, you're never gonna make it in this race. You're never gonna finish. Your grip of Jesus is so loose. Come on, you think you're gonna make it? These thoughts come into our head when we look at self. But the Christian life is one that lifts our eyes and fixes, fixes it on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Did you read that? He's the founder. He made faith possible and he perfected it by his life and his death and his resurrection. In other words, in the Christian life, we're called to fix our eyes, not on the strength of our faith, but Jesus. Not on the joy of our faith or lack thereof, but fix it on Jesus. Not even on the spiritual disciplines, whether they be good or bad, but on Jesus. It is not even your faith in Christ that should be fixed on, although that be the instrument to our salvation. It's Christ's life and work imputed to you by faith. That is the object to which our eyes should be fixed on. Charles Spurgeon says this, we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Let me read that again. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Friends, fix the eyes of your heart on Jesus until you see him as he really is. Absolutely beautiful. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, friends, it was a joy. He endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Every time you look at yourself, John Sott says, take 10 looks at Jesus. In other words, what is most true of you as it relates to God, if you are in Christ, is not what is true of you necessarily, but what is true of Jesus. Only Christ founds faith and perfects it. Fix your eyes on him, who for the joy set before him despised the shame, endured the cross, and is seated at the right hand of God. You know, there, what does it mean by he despised the shame? There was no greater insult to a Jew than to die on a cross. In Galatians 3.13, Paul makes the argument that everyone is cursed who hangs upon a tree. The amount of shame that Jesus endured, he despised it. One commentator, Kent Hughes, says he thought nothing of it. He would willingly go to the cross for you and I. But what's his joy? That's my question. What's his joy? Have you, did you ask yourself that? Is it the cross that Jesus loved pain? No, right? And even the pain was not the ultimate end. It was the wrath of God that would be poured on him that he feared. Was it the cross? No. Was it the glory of God? He had the glory of God. Was it holiness? No, he was perfectly holy. Was it money? No, he had all riches. What did he have? What did he not have? That was his joy that he was about to have. His bride, you, the church, why did he suffer so horribly? Jesus' joy was in having his beloved. Revelation 21, two through four points this out. He says, and I, 
the, the, the apostle John says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See the joy of ransoming his bride. This pushes us to endure. This is the gasoline that helps us fight and run the race that is the Christian life. And then lastly, we're called to consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What does that mean, to consider him? That word consider comes from a word, it really means to calculate. It's, it's actually from the same word that we get logarithm from. It means to calculate, to analyze. In other words, the author is saying, think about him. Look at what he did. Look at Jesus. Consider him. Right? When those weights, when those weights, which are, as the writer says, so close, think of him. And as the NIV says, when, it, when that sin so easily entangles us, consider him. Think about Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, who literally has suffered and gone through everything that you have and more. Think about that. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which we looked at back in the summer. Let me read it again. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Believer, this is our privilege, with confidence to draw near to God, because he has drawn near to you. But if there's one thing that is true in the theme of Hebrews that we see, it's the call to persevere. It's the call that many trials and many sufferings will come in the Christian life. This is a reality. And, and in fact, let me show you as the progression of Hebrews comes, right? Hebrews, in Hebrews 2.1, we, we, we see a word called drifting, Right? He says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from God, right? Hebrews 2.1 actually uses the word drifting. Let me go back to um, the word turning away. So he says, he uses the word drifting in 2.1. Then in Hebrews 3.12, he uses the word turning away. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then you see the word throw it away in Hebrews 10, 35 through 36. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may received, receive what is promised. In other words, there was a progression. It had gotten worse. First drifting, then 180 degree turning, and then some in the Hebrew church 
We're even throwing it all away. And that word endure that he calls us to is, is a word that literally means to stand. To hi, it actually means to hyperstand, uh, to stand still under immense opposition and pain. And this is the call for the Christian life, that trials and pain and circumstances will come. But look to him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary, friends. John Owen was a, a, a Puritan writer and he sailed a lot. And he says that actually in a sailstorm, if you, when, you are in a, when you are in a sea storm in a, on a sailboat, if you hold onto the steering wheel and just hold on as tight as you can, you may actually get there, get to your destination faster had the storm not come. But if you're in the sea storm and on the boat and you go below deck just to get out of the storm, you'll be lost forever. You won't arrive to your destination. What's the point? The call for the Christian life is to hold on to the rudder, to hold on to Jesus, to hold on to him who endured such hostility by sinners. Right? What this means is that we have the power to look past and not be dominated by our circumstances. No matter what they are in life, friends, no matter, no matter what you're going through, no matter what diagnosis, no matter who passed away, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Not only has Jesus run the race for you, he won the race. Think about that. He's the only founder and perfecter of any religion who suffered, who willingly suffered for you. Who, who went to the cross for you. Consider him. Think about Jesus until your affections and emotions are stirred. Scripture says that it was his joy in saving his enemies, Romans 5, 8 says. And if you or I would have come to earth, we would have thrown in the towel. These ungrateful, graceless people, lying, selfish people, but not Jesus. He never wavered. He never complained. He never thought of himself, but of God's glory in you. He ran the race so that you may not grow weary. Let me end with this. In Isaiah 50, six through seven, Isaiah speaks about Jesus. He speaks about Jesus's life and he says, he gives a quote, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. What does it mean to set your face like flint? What it means is flint is a, it's a, um, it's a sedimentary rock that when struck against steel, sparks will fly to start a fire. And so setting your face like flint implies that you're expecting some opposition to stand, but you stand strong in the face of adversity. To set your face like flints means to regard these difficulties as worthwhile because you consider the joy that's about to come all worth it. But look what Luke 9, 51 says. Look what the author, look what Luke says. In Luke 9, 51, he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Every commentator says that the author is putting this in here because He's alluding to Isaiah 50, six through seven. But what's in Jerusalem? What's in Jerusalem? The cross, the cross. I set my face like flint 
to the cross. Jesus knew opposition was coming. He knew opposition, unimaginable opposition was ahead. The cross, the hostility, the beating, the torture from sinners was ahead. The wrath of God, most importantly, was about to be dumped on him. Yet his face and his heart was set for the cross so that our hearts could be set on God. He wouldn't stop until he says, it's finished. Friends, in Jesus' sufferings, he fixed his eyes like flint. He set his face like flint towards the cross for us. In your suffering, in the highs and lows of, the, of this Christian race and of your walk with God, fix your eyes on him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for, God, that you set your face like flint. God, that you pursued the joy that was set before you. You endured the cross, and through the cross, we might be sons of God, adopted and loved so deeply by you. Help us to fix the eyes of our hearts, not on possessions or money or even the future or the like, but help our eyes to be glued to you. Let our affections be captured, our imagination saturated by your work on the cross. Help us in this new year, in our family, in our work, in our private life, to fix our eyes on you, who founded and perfects our faith. Lord, you're so good and kind. Help us to love you like you love us. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.